What was Christmas like in your home growing up? What was the tradition like? Some of you are young enough that that tradition is still unfolding before you. In our home, we grew up on a 12-acre uh, country farm, and it was a two-story farmhouse, and all the bedrooms were upstairs. And so our Christmas, Christmas tradition involved us kids waiting at the top of the steps, all excited to be sent down to open Christmas gifts. And we had to wait until our parents gave us the green light so that we could go down and make sure, make sure everybody was up, which usually meant them, right? Because parents are like the last to arise and the kids are up whispering, it's, it's, it's Christmas, it's Christmas. And everyone's really excited uh, to go down. I still remember lobbying for a position at the top of the stairs so you could be the first to bolt down and get your gifts. Like uh, the start of a race, just please, mom and dad, give us the, the green light. And I think that the anticipation of of opening up the gifts was just as exciting as actually opening up the gifts themselves. Looking back, we also had something else that made our tradition special. We would go over to my grandparents' house on my dad's side and involved uh, about a one-hour trip um, over to Iowa. We lived in Illinois, but we were close to the border, and we'd travel over, and my grandma would always have one gift ready for each of the grandchildren, and what was really special was that our parents allowed us to open this gift on Christmas Eve. And in many ways, it, it, it was exciting and it was very special because it made us think about the ensuing gifts that we were going to open up the following day. But beyond that, it did something else. It was special because it let us know that Christmas had arrived that it was officially here. We knew that when we were at grandma's house, that when we were opening up the gifts, that it was here and our hearts could fully engage in the reality of all that would be in store. And this morning, I wanted us to prepare our hearts for Christmas. The celebration is five days away, and I thought a great way for us to do that would be to unwrap our greatest gift together. And this will allow you and I to put all the other gifts that are connected with the celebration in perspective. And it will also allow you and I to experience the greatest amount of joy as we celebrate in the spirit and not in the flesh. God wants your heart to be overwhelmed this Christmas. He doesn't want it overwhelmed with holiday travel and errands. He doesn't want it overwhelmed with your need to have a clean house so that you are, can host company. He doesn't want it overwhelmed by the fact that you have deadlines at work that need to be finished by the new year. Though he understands and sympathizes with all of our pressures and our moments of weakness, he wants you and I to be overwhelmed by his incredible love for you and for me. Every Christmas gift is emblematic of the greatest gift that we have ever received, the love gift of God to man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus was not only given as, as a son at, at his birth, as Isaiah 9-6 says, but he was given as a sacrifice according to Isaiah 53. 
And this morning, we're going to look at God's greatest gift found in the most well-known verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, where we have the gospel in a nutshell. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. And to see the immediate context of this verse, I'm actually going to read verses 16 through 21. And here are the words directly spoken by Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. We have been working our way through our study in the gospel of Mark, and now we're in a different gospel account, so it's important that we consider the context. There are four gospels, as you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning similar, and they're similar in the sense that all of them describe a narrative of the life and ministry and eventually the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have many things in common. Each theme of each, uh, each gospel is different. Matthew, the theme is Jesus the King. In Mark, as we're learning, it's Jesus the Servant. In Luke, it is Jesus the Son of Man. And in the Gospel of John, it is Jesus the Son of God. And in John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a religious leader of Israel by the name of Nicodemus. And the preceding verses, he's telling Nicodemus that he must be born again. And then he goes on to describe the spiritual dynamic of what occurs when this takes place. And what this does is just, it leads Nicodemus to ask more questions. And when we get to these verses, John 3, 16 through 21, these are the final words that our Lord is sharing with Nicodemus. If a person believes... In Jesus as the Son of God, again, the theme of the entire gospel of John, this person will be born again. And this offers us insight into the historical significance of this verse being the most utilized in evangelism when witnessing to a lost world. Why has its impact been so great? What truths does it contain? And why should we connect it to Christmas? John 3.16 provides three elements of God's greatest gifts so that you and I unwrap God's incredible love for us and celebrate the true gift of Christmas. I thought it was appropriate that we use the word unwrap. Nearly all gifts need to be unwrapped, right? And we do this so that they can be disclosed, so that we can find out what's inside. And this is what we need to do with this verse Let's unwrap it together. 
The first element that needs to be unwrapped is the motive of God's gift. Look at the beginning of verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world. And our verse begins with a three-letter word, for, which connects it to the preceding verses, uh, 13 through 15. And in verses 13 through 15, they speak of Jesus coming down from heaven, being lifted up just as the serpent in the wilderness was, and giving eternal life to anyone who would believe in him. And this analogy comes, uh, and this account is found in Numbers 21, when the people of Israel were actually disobedient and they were sinning that God allowed serpents that would come that when they would sin they would feel the bite and the sting and and many people were even dying from from the bites and so they came the people come to Moses and then Moses goes to God he intercedes on their behalf and God's solution was for Moses to take a bronze serpent to put it on a pole So that anyone who, after being bit, if they looked by faith to the serpent on the pole, that they would be healed. And ironically, this is where we get the medical symbol that we see in our culture today. What is it? It is a serpent wrapped around a pole. Healing. It's for healing. Today, all of mankind is born with the venomous bite of Adam's sin, the curse And death is upon us all. And Jesus is lifted up on the cross, and he's God's solution for the sin disease of mankind. Everyone needs to look by faith in order to be healed to the one that is lifted up. Warren Wiersbe has said, the difference between perishing and living and between condemnation and salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus could well have come to this world as a judge and destroyed every rebellious sinner. But in love, he came to this world as our Savior, and he died for us on the cross. He became the uplifted serpent. The serpent in Moses' day brought physical life to dying Jews, but Jesus Christ gives eternal life to anyone who trusts him. He has salvation for the whole world. End quote. And this is what John emphasizes in verse 15, where he writes, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And there you have it. You and I are born accursed. The judgment of God is upon us. We need to be rescued from God's justice. And what we need to do is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, crucified on the cross, and be healed of our sin. And the word for connects the exhortation to believe unto eternal life in verse 16. Look again at the beginning of verse 16. This is, we're going to begin to unwrap the motive of God's gift. And at first glance, when you look at this verse, it really is a simple verse in some respects, but it is loaded and every word has meaning. The word set sets us back into the the treasure trove of the preceding context. The word God cannot be exhausted. And then there are all the marvels of all that could be said about the love of God and the world and gave and only begotten Son, whosoever believe, perish, and everlasting life. John 3.16 could literally be preached for months. The commentary critical and explanatory on the whole Bible rightly says concerning these words, 
What proclamation of the gospel has been so often on the lips of missionaries and preachers in every age since it was first uttered? What has sent such thrilling sensations through millions of mankind? What has been honored to bring multitudes to the feet of Christ? What kindles in the cold and selfish breasts of mortals the fires of self-sacrificing love to mankind as these words of transparent simplicity yet overpowering majesty? And this statement captures the depth and the scope of John 3.16. And the word so in the phrase so love the world does not express emotion but manner. It might be translated in such a manner or in such a way. It puts emphasis on how God's love acted. It might be translated, God in this manner loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Perhaps you've heard that explanation before. It is describing the manner or the way. But it also encapsulates God's motive. And to unwrap this element, we need to see the fullness of God's love in the scriptures and how his love is directed towards believers. And I wanted to provide a synopsis of what the scriptures teach us about God's love. And if we were to do an exhaustive study on it, of course it would fill pages, but I think we need to unwrap the thrust of it. And that's what I did by providing in your outline, it should be there for you, the scripture references The first reality that a believer must understand is that God's love defines him. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. It is a defining element of his very nature. Of course, he has many other attributes, and we don't want to make the liberal mistake of saying that God is only love and that his love looks with indifference upon evil and sin and ungodliness. Some imagine that God's love is void of justice and holiness and that it tolerates sin and that it would never approve of just judgment, but such a love is not love at all. That's actually evil. Remember when Paul was writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 4 through 7, he said this about love as he was defining it. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. And God's love is grand. It fuels his patience, long-suffering, and mercy. And mercy holds back the flood of his holy justice and gives us time to repent by his grace. And this is the reality of love that flows out of the person of God and is captured more fully in the second reality on our list. God's love rescues you. Romans 5.8, a favorite verse of many, says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for you and I was put into action. Despite our rebellion, despite our waywardness, despite that we live in a psychologized world that continues to sound the skipping record that you're a pretty good person, And that people in general are good people. When the scriptures teach exactly the opposite on the depravity of man. Romans 3.12 says it directly. It says, there is none good. No, not even one. That levels the playing field. There was and is nothing worthy 
that would warrant his love and grace to intervene. And just a few verses earlier in Romans 5, 6, it says, for while we were still helpless, Ephesians 2 talks about us being dead in our transgressions. These are familiar verses to this church. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. His love rescues us from our helpless and hopeless condition. And we could spend the remainder of our days trying to grasp the significance of this. And we would never be able to subdue the the profundity of God's love. Like the depth of the ocean, we can only submerge for so long before our finite ability forces us to resurface for air. What is remarkable is that the scriptures continue to unwrap God's love, helping us to see that it, it does more than just rescue us. If that wasn't enough, it goes on. First John 4.19 and the third reality in your outline, God's love enables your love. First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. True biblical love has a divine origin. It isn't a natural ability that we possess as human beings. Christians should know that our ability to love is not our own. We do not create it, nor do we even have the power to express it, but it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And when we're, in, when we're saved, we're enabled to express love in a way that we could not express it before. Clear evidence of this comes in our ability to exercise love according to how it's defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 7. Being patient, being kind, being humble, And everything on that list, it reflects biblical love and it's credited to God's work in and through the life of a believer. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I'm pretty sure. So so are you saying then that an unbeliever cannot really love another person? Is that what you're saying, Pastor John? Yes and no. Yes and no. And I would answer it this way. Because of God's common grace and because of the law of God inscribed on the heart of believer through a measure of common grace that I believe that there are aspects of love that the world is allowed to experience that flow again out of the reality of the law that's inscribed on the heart. And we witness that in a manifold way and in an expression right around this season especially. It's an abundant overflow of God's common grace flowing out of even the inscribed law on the conscience of the unbeliever. But because their heart motive isn't rooted in Christ, ultimately it is impossible for them to love another person like Christ enables Christians to love. And Jesus even shared that his disciples would be known by their love for one another because it was going to be different. On the outside, there might be some similarities, but on the inside, only the converted heart can love like Christ. And believers, we know this, right? We are what we are by the grace of God. Amen? Right? We are what we are by the grace of God. And, and, and through that grace and through his goodness and through that regeneration and through that redemption of our heart, that we are what we are. And from out of that good works flow, from out of that true biblical love and obedience flows out that can bless one another, bless God, and bless our neighbor. 
The fourth reality as we continue to unwrap the synopsis of God's love is found in Romans 8, verses 37 through 39. And it teaches us that God's love secures you. Here's how the Apostle Paul expressed it to the believers in Rome. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And R.C. Sproul had this to say about this passage. Do you know what happens to people when they are persuaded? They become convinced. And people who are convinced have convictions. And people who have convictions live according to principles. How else can you explain the life and ministry of Paul apart from the fact that he was a man who had been convinced? And that's what we need in the church. People who are convinced that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul gives a list of things that could possibly disrupt and rupture our relationship with Christ. Death, life, angels, demons, the present, the future, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. Paul could have said it in one sentence. Brethren, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And that is the point he is making. There is nothing in this universe that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We know that we are ultimately safe and secure in Christ. Amen? Amen. And we celebrate that. That is the, the, the reality. But we lose sight of that. We lose sight of that sometimes, don't we? We do. I think that um, maybe it has something to do with the fact of our, our parenting and um, sometimes because of our anger and our sinful anger and sinful disappointment as it, uh, it relates to us, we somehow um, allow that to eclipse the reality of God's securing love, that it will never change. And parents, you think about this with your, and every parent can resonate with this. You would say, there's no way that I would never, never not love one of my kids. Would you say that? I think there's a lot of parents that would say that. And then there's circumstances that can come and a child can go wayward and things can be really challenged and things can be really tested in that regard. And sometimes things can be major, major breakdown and that love can be very threatened. But God assures us as it relates to us, as it relates to our adoption in him. His affection for you will not change. You are secure in his love and we cannot miss it. That is what is right here at the synopsis of his love when he sent the Lord Jesus Christ. The fifth and final reality on our list reveals that God's love sustains you. Psalm 100 verse 5 says that his love is everlasting. And the word used is a special word in the Hebrew referring to his covenant love. The promises revealed in all of these reality, realities of God's love will sustain a believer now and through all eternity. And God's love can never be exhausted. You've heard this expression before, the gift that keeps on giving. And it's actually a trademark of a company that used to sell phonographs back in the 1920s. Then there were a few other companies that um, tried to reinvent and, and, and use the trademark. But you know what? They all fizzled. And you want to know why? It really is a false concept. 
Why? Because many gifts do fail. They do stop giving. And even if it's something that doesn't break down and doesn't fail, the, the, the recipient of the gift eventually fails, right? Eventually they're going to die. They're not going to be able to receive the, the benefits of that gift. Or they might not even be interested in the benefits of that gift anymore. Only God's love through Christ and the gospel is truly the gift that literally keeps on giving in this life and throughout all of eternity. The beginning of verse 16 finishes by sharing the scope of God's love. When it says, God so loved the world, the the world here means the entire world of lost and sinful men. And the message of the gospel and the gift of God's love is to be preached to all mankind. And we don't know who he's going to save. We don't know which people. But we know that our task as believers is to make sure that they all hear the gospel and call them to faith and repentance. And like those of us who believe, perhaps one day God will also allow them to unwrap the depth of his love that is revealed in the motive of God's gift. Well, there's a second element of God's gift that must be unwrapped, which we'll call the substance of God's gift. Look at the middle of verse 16. Here we're told how God tangibly expressed his love for the world of men, that he gave his only begotten son. And the word that is representing a purpose clause, and there's actually two in this verse. And they're letting us know the reason or the purpose behind God doing what he did in the sequence in which it happened. John Calvin, commenting on this text, says, For as men are not easily convinced that God loves them, in order to remove all doubt, he has expressly stated that we are so very dear to God that on our account he did not even spare his only begotten son. Moved out of love for the world of lost sinners, God took action. He became a man in the person of his son, who was born of a virgin, lived, died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and is the love gift to the world of men. The only begotten son, which means the one and only, or only born son. Everyone is a son or a child of God in a, in a created sense. And all believers are adopted into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ and therefore become sons and daughters of God in salvation through adoption. But when it becomes to becoming a uh, God, becoming a man, there's only one. There's only the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth, just as John 1.14 describes Jesus. He's in a class of his own when he became fully God and fully man. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. It is the celebration of, of God's greatest miracle. Wayne Grudem describes it this way. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become a man, man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe, end quote. And it's the very substance of God's gift and his love for you and for me. 
to humble himself, to step out of heaven, the glory of heaven, to be born in a manger, literally born in a feeding trough. And there's a big misconception as it relates to, I think, where Jesus was born. Answers in Genesis was really helpful when I was reading about it um, earlier this week. Where, you know, that Jesus, they went to an inn, they were denied at the inn because there was no room in the inn. And um, yeah, so they went to a stable, right? Right, that's, the, that's what everybody understands as it relates to the story. But the more probable story, according to answers in Genesis, is that Joseph and Mary stayed in a house with one of Joseph's relatives because of the census that was being proclaimed in Luke chapter 2. There was a census that was ordered throughout the entire Roman Empire. And the guest room or chamber, it's kataluma in the Greek, would be on the second floor of the house, and so in all likelihood, when uh, Joseph and Mary were, were back for the census, they, they stayed with Joseph's relatives. And because of the census taking place at the same time, the kataluma, the guest room, the chamber would have been very full. And so there was no room for them. And so they were forced to go down and sit. And this is really interesting too. Um, I'll share this. You guys know the story of the Good Samaritan where they find the person, he takes him to an inn, he takes him to an innkeeper. There was actually a word for a hotel, an innkeeper. And that's not what gets used in Luke 2. Cataluma is the guest room. And, and, and people don't know this, and it's, it's really foreign to our thinking, that animals were kept in on the first floor. Because of the elements at night and because of thieves and, and robbers, especially your most prized and protected animals were brought in and they stayed on the first floor. So when Jesus and or Joseph and Mary were at, at a relative's house and there was, the guest chamber was completely packed full, they had no other place to stay except right there in that first floor. Here's one more fascinating tidbit for you. The animals that stayed inside would have been the most prized and protected, as I mentioned earlier. And when sacrifices were made, it required what type of animal? Without spot, right? Without blemish. These were your best animals. And so according to the Levitical tradition, according to the animal sacrifices, the animals that would have been taken to, to be sacrificed would have come more than likely from inside the house. In the strange twist of irony, Jesus was born with these animals and was identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. This lamb would be the perfect once and for all blood sacrifice for sin, according to Hebrews 10.10. And this is the substance of God's gift Mankind was helpless and hopeless when God's love sent Jesus into the world to enlighten every man, according to John 1.9. Hebrews 2.9 says, Jesus tasted death for everyone. John says in 1 John 2.2 that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And this, again, doesn't mean that all men will be saved. 
It means that Jesus is the only Savior given to the world of lost sinners. Jesus is the Savior of all men in that he alone is the only one sent by God. When it comes to saviors, there's only one, Jesus. He is the only one who can legitimately be offered to the world of lost and dying men. Ponder that God, out of love, gave his son to die for you and me. And the word gave doesn't merely mean gave to be born, though that is true. It doesn't merely mean gave to be born to live and do good either. No, it means more than that. It means that he was gave, he was gave to be born to live, to do good, and to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Unwrap this truth that God, out of love for you, sent the very substance and life of his own son to die on the cross. But there's a third element in our verse. John 3.16, again, three elements of God's greatest gift so that you unwrap his incredible love for you and celebrate the true gift of Christmas. We've unwrapped the motive. We've unwrapped the substance. Let's finish by unwrapping the blessing of God's gift. Look towards the end of verse 16. It says that whoever believes in him shall not perish. We need to stop right here. There are two concepts, belief and perish. Let's talk about both. First, belief. There are two kinds of faith or belief. There's an intellectual faith, which is a faith that agrees with the facts intellectually. And we see examples of this uh, with the demons, according to James, that recognized Jesus. They believed the reality and the facts about who he was and that they shuddered. Literally, it, it made their hairs stand up on end. But they don't trust God. And they don't want to submit to God. But they believe in God and that they know that God exists and that Jesus is the Savior. They know the Bible better than any of us. They believe the facts that are in the Bible, for they know the Bible is true and cannot err. They have an intellectual faith. I may ask you, do you believe in, uh, that it's, it's good to and right to floss your teeth? And you would, intellectually, you would say, yes, I, I believe that that's, that that's good, but you may not do it. <laughs> I may ask you if you believe that it's good that you get um, uh, 20 minutes of exercise four times a week, cardiovascular, to take care of yourself. And you believe that fact, that it is good, but you may not do it. These are examples of intellectual faith and intellectual faith by itself will not save you. Then there is volitional faith, trusting faith, faith that relies upon, puts weight into what one knows and believes intellectually. And this is the kind of faith that saves sinners from hell. If I were to take you to Yosemite and were to uh, fasten a harness to you so that you could repel off a cliff Right, And I were to share with you and even hook that harness up and show that it can pull a car. Right, There's nothing to worry about. Right, And I, I tell you, okay, I got you harnessed in and now I need you to step backwards off the cliff. You may say, I'm sorry. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And true saving faith is willing to step off the cliff backwards and blindfolded into the arms of Jesus. 
Saving faith is intellectual, but it's volitional in that it moves the will. It takes action. And this is the kind of faith that our text is talking about. Whosoever places their entire weight and trust in Jesus alone for salvation will not perish. And you need to consider what kind of faith you have. J.C. Ryle rightly notes, dismiss from your mind that the, the idea that faith is a mere act of intellect. It is simply the grasp of a contrite heart on the outstretched hand of an almighty savior, the repose of a weary head on the bosom of an almighty friend. Cast away all ideas of work or merit or doing or performing or paying or giving or buying or laboring in the act of believing on Christ. Understand that faith is not giving but taking, not paying but receiving, not buying but being enriched. Faith is the eye which looks to the brazen serpent and looking obtains life and health. It is the mouth which drinks down the reviving medicine and drinking receives strength and vigor for the whole body. It is the hand of the drowning man which lays a hold on the rope thrown to him and laying hold enables him to be drawn up from the deep water of sin safe and sound. This and nothing more than this is the true idea of saving faith. This and this only is the faith that is required to give you interest in the blood of Christ. Believe in this way and your sins are at once cleansed away. End quote. Powerful, powerful quote by J.C. Ryle. And this word believes is actually a participle. It's in the present tense. And so there's an ongoing action of faith. It ignites something. It started something. You believe, you believe, you believe. And it's, 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 it's continual. But there's another word that we need to look at. It's the word perish. Perish refers to those whose final destination will be the lake of fire. Which implies what? That all men are in danger of perishing in hell because of their sin. And there is no good news. We know this as a, a gospel-exalting church, preaching church. There is no good news unless you have bad news. There is no salvation unless you recognize the fact that there is something that you need to be saved from. Well, the bad news is that God does judge unrepentant sinners. And the good news is that faith in Jesus Christ alone is able to rescue a sinner from the hell they deserved. Without faith in Jesus Christ, we're all destined to perish. In the lake of fire, that's a terrifying thought. For ever and ever. But a thought that is right here before us in this text. A text about God's love taking action to save sinners. But what do we do? What, what do we get if we place our faith in Christ? We need to completely unwrap the blessing of this gift. First, we, our, our faith, right? There's a security that comes. We believe, right? And, and with that comes not perishing. But that's not it. That's the first and second part. But at the end of verse 16, that's where we see the third part where it says, but have eternal life. Eternal life, as mentioned here, is the present tense, which means that the moment a person believes unto salvation, they, present, they presently experience the reality of eternal life. Now I got a question for you. What is eternal life? Just answer that in your own mind. 
as you sit there. What is eternal life? If somebody were to come up to you, coworker, somebody interested in Christianity seeking, or somebody in your care group were to ask you to define eternal life, what would you say? I want you to capture it. Does it mean existing and living forever? No. No. We have it from the second we believe. If eternal life was merely eternal conscious existence, then people in hell would have eternal life. But the Bible describes their fate as everlasting death. And there's a text in John's gospel, and this is a verse that you'll want to underline because it's, 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 it's so profound. You can turn there if you would like. It is John 17, 3. And it reads, and this is Jesus defining eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see it? Eternal life is not merely existing forever, but existing forever in the presence of Jesus Christ, knowing the Father and the Son. And eternal life is really more about um, the quality of life than the duration. And though it does go on forever, you're not wrong to, to think about that aspect. When, when it's being defined, it is being with a just, holy, and righteous, and merciful Savior for all of eternity. All of eternity. That's, that's eternal life. And some of us who were in the First Thessalonians study um, over the course of the summer, well, you can remember how Paul described it to the Thessalonian believers, the fate of those who reject the gospel and those who will not believe the truth. This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians 6 through 10. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are reflected and to us as well when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven when his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now listen to this part carefully. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. You see it? The wicked, that's, that's away from the presence. That's damnation. That's the sentence. Forever away from the presence. And this is what, the, this is what it means to be in hell, to be away from Jesus. If you're an unbeliever here today, don't let this happen to you. Look to Christ. Look at him right now. Look at him dressed in white. Look at his radiant eyes. Look at him seated on his throne. Look at the myriad of angels that are surrounding him and worshiping him and praising him. See him. See the substance of who he is. See him today. See the need and the reality of all that he stands for. That your faith needs to be in him completely. 
without any doubts that you will step off that cliff, that you will step back, and that the, 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 the cords of the gospel that secure you, that are fastened to you, that harness you in Christ will never be broken. That is it. That is the step. You would see his nail-pierced hand reaching out to you, reminding you of the payment that he's made on your behalf and that you would respond to his call. Come to me, all who are weary. Come to me, take hold. Take hold, and I will give you rest. Have you done that? Have you looked to Jesus in faith? Have you gazed at Christ? Have you seen the empty tomb? Have you placed your faith in the only name given among men by which we can be saved? Acts 4.12. You must believe. Not with a mere intellectual faith. Not like the demons. Not like many who walk around and many throughout evangelical communities that have an intellectual knowledge of Jesus in the Bible, but with a heart of trusting faith. Repenting of your sins, letting go, turning from whatever it is that you're living for now, and you step back off the cliff into the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ to be saved. You must completely unwrap the gift of Christ. Well, I want to illustrate this. I'm going to need some help. June, Lorraine, could you come up here for just a second for me, please? Lorraine's loving this, by the way. She absolutely loves coming up in front. I I need your help. Just help with something. I know. You know I love you. I love you. I love your family. So blessed just to see you go from bass to go over to the drums this morning. And then, like, man, this is like one man band. I have a gift for you. And I want you to open it. Okay? So go ahead. Yeah, my wife. My, Victoria wrapped this. Beautiful, huh? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Games are over. No, 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 nothing. <laughs> nothing alive either. Okay, I want you to take out. Take, to go ahead and just take out what's in there. Wow, cool. There's two of them. How did I know there was two of them? Nice. Yeah, wow, check these out. That's this? Uh, amazing, huh? Nice rope. June, come over here. I want to I see. Come here. Do this. Okay. Uh, I'll get you and then you can help your wife. Okay. Help your, help your wife. What do you guys think, huh? Yeah. Pretty nice. Fits, fits great. Okay. Help your wife. Yeah, there you go. Wonderful. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you, thank you. I think everybody would agree that they fit perfectly. Um, I want to thank you personally because you're you're helping illustrate this sermon. And 
you know what? I could have selected any couple, right? Any couple in this room I could have selected to come up and open up that gift. I selected June and Lorraine. And you know what, believer? God could have selected anyone to believe. Anyone in this world to believe. And he selected you. He chose you by his grace. And so that gift was given. And this would actually serve as a sermon illustration as it relates to the irresistible grace, the drawing grace of God. And you receive the gift, but you had to do what in order to get to this place? You had to receive it, and then you had to do what? You had to open it, right? And then what? they had to recognize the substance. They had to recognize and, and see the substance of what that gift was, right? And then what did you do, right? And then this was encouragement, right? You, you need a little bit of encouragement from me because I encourage you, right, as God encourages us to, to, to put it on. And you know, it's, it's fitting, and I wanted to, 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 to get, uh, do this and use robes because you guys know me. I'm filled with cheesy puns, and I'm being punny on poipus here. But um, the, 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 the truth is, is that we're robed in his righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ wears a robe of righteousness, and that in faith, in faith, that when we come, we are, we are clothed with his righteousness, right? And... Thank you guys so much for, and you know what, Here's an, you can even have an extra gift box if you want it to, and um, I got those at Ross too, so it, it, yeah, if you, just in case you want to make some exchanges, we can work that out. If, it's, if pink's not your color, I, I told you, I like the manly robe though, that's a, that's a keeper right there, all right? And so the, uh, the application, everybody is, is for us right here, Right? You know, many of us will be around unbelieving family, right? And there's going to be a lot of gifts underneath the tree. But will they receive the gift? Will, will they unwrap the motive of God's love? Will, will they even know, right? And that's where we're, 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 we have the blessing and the incredible privilege to, to share that love, to, to speak that love, to let them know, to help them see the substance of the gift. Their greatest need. And that it's right there. And that a, near, a nail-pierced hand is ready to reach out this Christmas, this time, right now, and to grab hold of them and that their life can truly start in Christ. And not only that, but they'll get all the blessing that comes with the gift. They won't perish, but they'll have eternal life. They'll have eternal life. Well, may we do this faithfully. I know that many of you in our church has been praying for the opportunities that we'll have with unsaved family and friends. And certainly, there's probably not a more appropriate way for us to prepare for the celebration of communion than focusing on the unwrapping of our greatest gift. So what I'm going to do is close our time in prayer and then the uh, worship team is going to come forward and we're going to go ahead and prepare our hearts for communion.
and I'll share some additional instruction as it relates as we close our service with that celebration. Please pray with me. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, we bow our heads in adoration and praise and thanks, rejoicing in the reality and the provision of your Son. And there's not a more appropriate time than to think about the substance of your son coming in the flesh than him being born in a feeding trough amongst animals. Amongst the animals that would be used for countless blood sacrifices in order to deal with the sins of your people of Israel and the perfect lamb the spotless lamb the truly perfect one and spotless one the perfect blood sacrifice came and was born and we celebrate the reality of your mercy and your kindness father that you sent this gift you are the one with the heart and the love for us and the motive and to the world it's just a crazy foolish message but to us it shows your power it's the power of your salvation and so father I just thank you for allowing us to put John 3:16 under the microscope for allowing us to consider all three elements of the motive of your love, the substance of the gift, and the blessing that is ours, those of us who are in Christ, and that we get to know you and that our relationship with you, initiated through the gospel, will continue both now and throughout all of eternity. We ask now as we turn our attention towards the reality of all that you've done for us as we celebrate what you've ordained for the church the Lord's Supper, that we could honor you, that you would have every heart that of every believer prepared to receive it. And we need your grace. We thank you for it. We give you praise. I pray, Father, especially for everyone at Christmas, that they would make the most of the gift, the treasured gift, the gift that, the unseen gift, if you will, that will need to be explained that will need to be communicated in acts of kindness and love and in words by the feet shod with the gospel to bring it. I pray that you would help us all to overcome our fear of man, our fear of family and those who we anticipate might even be resistant, that you would soften uh, the soil of their heart to receive the seed of the gospel and that it could take root and produce fruit. We ask this in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.